Imagine you're at a seminar and you're asked to work together with the other people at your table on a project. What would the outcome look like if everyone at the table came from the same neighborhood, the same school, the same career path as you? What would it look like if everyone came from different backgrounds, different life experiences, different careers and skill sets and perspectives? Diversity is normally thought to be valuable because by bringing people who are different to the table, you get different ideas that make the end product better. And that's definitely true. But diversity provides a deeper value than that. It actually changes our behavior and the way we cognitively process information. Welcome to This Is Community, a podcast series by purpose-built communities about breaking the cycle of poverty and creating vibrant communities where everyone has the opportunity to thrive. I'm Alexandra Wiggins, a community development advisor with purpose-built communities. In this episode, we hear from Dr. Katherine Phillips, who presented on how we can learn and innovate more effectively and understand the value of diversity at the Purpose-Built Communities Annual Conference in Omaha, Nebraska in 2017. Dr. Phillips is a professor of leadership, ethics, and organizational character at Columbia Business School. Her research focuses on the value of diversity and the barriers that prevent society, organizations, and teams from capturing the knowledge, perspectives, and unique backgrounds of everyone involved. She does use a PowerPoint presentation during her session, and you can find that and more on our website at purposebuiltcommunities.org slash podcast. Here now is Dr. Katherine Phillips. So I'm going to take us on a little journey um, this evening, talking a bit about what I have learned about diversity and why it matters from some of my own personal experiences and also from my research. Every time I talk to people, I try to tell them a little bit about who I am, because in fact, the topic of diversity is one that, that I think it's important for you to know who you're talking to. Turns out that we're all filters. We all have our own personal experiences, our own personal background that shapes the way we see the world, the way we understand things. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself. So I am from Chicago. Do I have any Chicagoans in the house? All right, Chicagoans in the house. Chicago is a fantastic city. If you've never been there before, I highly encourage you to check it out. Um, I was born and raised in Chicago. My family still lives there. I am the youngest of six children. It's a lot of kids, I know, yeah. Um, the youngest of six children. And one of the things that was unique about my experience growing up is that the sister above me is six years older than me. And my oldest nephew is six years younger than me. So here I was in this big family, but I didn't really feel like I was a part of either of these groups of people. I found myself kind of with a foot over here and a foot over there. And that actually shaped my experience as I was growing up. When I went to high school, turns out that uh, I was again in the middle. I was a local kid from the neighborhood, walking to school every day. But I was also one of the quote unquote gifted kids. So if I didn't live in the neighborhood, I would have been bussed in to this particular high school. So I found myself in conversations with people kind of saying, why are those local kids so rowdy? 
They're always loud when they come in. And I was with them and I said, wait a minute guys, I'm actually one of the local kids. And then when I was with the local kids, they would say, those gifted kids, they're all snotty. <laughs> they think they know everything, taking over our school. And I said, hey guys, I'm actually one of them. So it turns out these experiences of being in the middle of bridging between different groups is really what shaped my fascination with the topic of diversity. So here's where I grew up in Chicago. It's the Morgan Park Beverly area of Chicago, Illinois, far south side. Chicago's known for a lot of things. It turns out that the food there is really good. We literally have won awards for great food in Chicago. But we've also won awards for being one of the most segregated cities in the United States. Purposefully so. <laughs> Chicago was built in a way that actually made it very clear that there were certain neighborhoods where you belonged, right? It's a city of neighborhoods, which was basically code when I was growing up for stay in your own neighborhood, right? So here I was growing up on the south side and in 1982, 83 timeframe is when the gifted and talented school process was introduced into the public schools in Chicago. And they went through all the schools and they tested all the children and came through, gave us these tests. And then in a few months, they sent a letter to our parents saying, we want to bus your kid from the school that they're at to another school, gifted school. Now, all my sisters and brothers went to the school up the street, <laughs> the same one that I was going to. So my parents weren't particularly interested in this, but I said, well, I kind of want to try it. So they put me on a bus and they bused me west. If you look at the map close enough, what you'll see is that I was bused into a neighborhood where African Americans didn't belong, all right? And it was my introduction in about fourth grade to diversity, to ignorance, um, and to trying again to understand how diversity worked. So after I um, finished my undergraduate degree at University of Illinois, I went on to graduate school. I have a PhD in organizational behavior from Stanford University. Um, I am the first African-American woman to receive a PhD from Stanford's business school. It's kind of scary. Sometimes when I say that, you know, I kind of think to myself, I don't know if I really want people clapping for that. But it turns out that many of us in the room were first. You were first somewhere. And my children, you would think, would never have to be first. But my daughters have also experienced times when they have been the first, right? So we keep entering into these environments. So I started doing research on diversity and inclusion at the time when um, Workforce 2000 was a thing, right? <laughs> diversity is coming, diversity is coming, watch out everybody, diversity is coming, uh, was really the message at the time. And I thought to myself, well, this is interesting because every time I walk into a room, it becomes more diverse. Diversity has always been here. Um, so what are we really talking about? As I started trying to understand the research, what do we really know about the influence of diversity? Started digging into the research a bit. And it, it turns out there's a lot of mixed findings out there 
around what the impact of diversity is. But we've started to come to some, I think, um, shared understanding of how it works. So I want to share that with you. If you look at the diversity research, you can start to see correlational research, a correlation between having more diversity in the organization and having some better outcomes down the road down here, right? So one example uh, is looking at female representation in top management teams in S&P 1500 firms. A colleague of mine did this research and they said, you know what, if you look at all of these firms and you examine if they have gender diversity, you'll find that those firms with gender diversity actually make more money. They bring more value to the firm. It's like, okay, that's interesting. I have another colleague who's looked at racial diversity. He looked in banks and he said, you know, if a bank has a focus on innovation, they have more racial diversity, you actually see more return on equity. Oh, okay. Again, a really compelling correlation. Uh, and then Credit Suisse actually did this amazing report in 2012 where they looked globally at firms and they found that if you had one or more women on the board, again, the firm is making more money. So there's really good correlational evidence out there and quite a bit of evidence from university settings. So I was invited to speak to the chief academic officers of um, liberal arts and smaller and HBCU universities a few months ago. They asked me to come in and talk to them. And I said, you know, it turns out I don't know a whole lot about the research that's been done in the area of education. Let me take a look. If you take a look at it, what you find is there are tons of studies that have shown that if you look at university settings, you follow people, longitudinal studies across lots of universities, being exposed to diversity leads to better outcomes for people. They learn more, right? You want to send your students to a diverse university. You want them to be exposed to diversity in the institutions that they're in. So really the question for me became like, what are we still searching for? Right, this question of what is the benefit of diversity. Sometimes people will use the language of the business case for diversity. What is the business case? I want to be convinced that diversity is beneficial. Um, so I put together an article that you can find online if you just Google it. I published it as Scientific American. It's called How Diversity Makes Us Smarter. And in this article, I share with people the research that I have done over the last 15 years or so, trying to understand not a correlation between diversity and outcomes, but an actual causal relationship. Is it true that if we put people together who look different from each other, who have different backgrounds, who have different education, whatever the difference might be, if you put those people together in a team, will they be better able to solve the problem that they're facing, to make better decisions? Can I prove that is true? So I actually decided I'm not going to do correlational research. I'm going to do experimental research. Now, what does that mean? Imagine the following. Imagine 
that I have said to you, I'm really interested in understanding group decision making and how it works. Can you come and participate with me so that I can learn something about group decision making? And I recruit you to come and participate. And you come in, I give you a task, I ask you to make some decisions about, you know, what should we do here in this problem? Now, I'm gonna control the information that I give you. I'm going to create some informational diversity amongst the people that I bring into the room. This is really important because we make an assumption. The assumption is diversity is beneficial, people who look different coming together, because people will bring different perspectives to the table, right? They'll bring different, different information with them. We don't really know if that's true. We just assume that it is. And so in my experiments, I actually can control that. I know exactly what you know because I've given you the information for this task that we're working on, right? So I give you this informational or opinion diversity, and I also recruit you strategically so that I can create groups that either have some social category diversity or not a diverse group or a homogeneous group in terms of the social category. I've used lots of different social categories. Uh, my perspective on diversity is that almost anything can be made salient to people and they will use it to make predictions about other people. So I've used things like, uh, you live on the north side of campus and you all live on the south side of campus. And people believe that because they live on different sides of campus, that they will think differently <laughs> about the problem that they're facing. I've used minimal distinctions, like literally randomly pull a piece of paper out of a hat. This is the group that you now belong to. People know that they've been randomly assigned, yet they still believe that it's an important distinction for them to pay attention to. So if people are willing to do that with minimal distinctions, imagine what they're doing with things like race and gender, right? Okay, so you've come in, you make an individual decision about the problem that you're facing. The kinds of problems I've looked at are things like, who committed this murder? We need to decide who we should arrest or which one of these companies should we invest in? Or who should we hire, right? These are the kind of problems that I'm asking people to solve. And I know the right answer. Again, something that you don't always know in the real world, what is the right answer, right? So I know the right answer to this problem. After they get together, they have a group discussion. I say, I want you to now talk about it and come up with a group decision. So I can see if you actually can get the right answer depending upon the composition of your group. I videotape the discussions and I ask them afterwards, how did it go? How effective was your team? How confident are you that you actually got the right answer? Right, really basic questions. So I've done this now. Um, over a thousand people have participated in these studies. I've used undergraduate students, I've used graduate students, um, I've used people in companies, maybe you've participated, didn't even know it. Um, and I've tried to learn and understand, do diverse groups actually outperform the homogeneous ones when you put them into these same circumstances? 
And the answer that I found is yes. The diverse groups tend to outperform the homogeneous groups. I assume that when you bring people together, that they're going to have some different knowledge and perspectives because no two people are exactly the same. But what I'm finding here is having that social category difference, something salient to them that tells them that this person is different from me, leads them to dig into the information more deeply. And they perform better, okay? Now, correlational results show us diversity is related to better outcomes. Now I'm showing you causally, because I've put people together who look different, they, they actually work harder. They perform better, okay? But if you ask them, how was it? It's completely opposite. You ask them, how effective was the group? And the homogeneous groups say, we were great. We are so fantastic. And we are so confident we got the right answer. It's that same thing. We probably have experienced this ourselves. When you walk into a diverse environment, it's not the easiest experience. And so you walk out of it thinking, this was hard and I'm not sure. But the homogeneous groups walk out of it thinking, well, this is fantastic. We're great. We got it right. If you look at this more deeply, what you see is it doesn't matter with the homogeneous groups whether they really got it right or not. They're equally confident. <laughs> they got it wrong, but they got it right. The diverse groups, on the other hand, they actually do move their confidence, and it's related to if they got it right or not. So they actually are more confident when they have a thorough process that really gets to the right answer, right? So the real value of diversity, if someone asks you, what is the value of diversity? Your first inclination is going to be, oh, people who are different will bring different perspectives to the table and that's it, right? And in some ways, it's, that has a ring of truth to it, absolutely. But what this research is showing us is that the value is not simply because people who are different bring different perspectives. It turns out that I've manipulated these groups in ways such that the person who looks different is not bringing anything new to the group. The only thing that they're bringing to the group is their social category difference. The information they have overlaps with somebody who's already there. You don't have to have that unique information to actually have social category differences have an impact on what's happening in the group. People behave differently when they're in diverse environments. Everybody actually changes their behavior when we're in the presence of diversity. It's pretty profound. You're not the same when you're in a diverse environment. Now, I've done more studies to prove that this is true. That even before you go into a group, if you know that the group is going to have some social category diversity, you actually think differently about the problem before you even go into the conversation. Right? So let me give you a little bit of insight on this. So one study here actually did a jury decision-making study. This was done by Sam Summers and his colleagues. He's a professor at Tufts University. And he did this mock jury study. He said he went to a, to a courthouse in Michigan 
and he convinced them, when you dismiss the jurors, instead of sending them home, send them to the room next door. And we're going to do kind of a little mock jury. He had them watch a video of a jury, of a, of a, a case, and then he got them together as a jury to talk about it. What he was able to show when he compared groups of all whites versus groups of whites and blacks, he was able to show that the difference in performance and in processing of information that happened across those two groups was because the white people in the presence of blacks behaved differently. They brought up more case facts. They made fewer errors. They caught each other more. They were more diligent in the work that they were doing in the diverse environment. There was also another study by Antonio. When they, what they did was they had people come in and share a minority perspective with others. And that person was either white or black. When the same minority perspective was shared by a black person, people thought more deeply about the problem than when that same minority perspective was shared by a fellow white. So it's the same information coming at you, just coming through a different filter, and you change the way you respond to it. Right? Here's one more. This was actually done by me and some of my colleagues. This one we used Republican versus Democrat. This is what we found. In the homogeneous environment, something we call pre-meeting elaboration, even before you come into the group discussion, we ask people to write an essay of what is it that you are um, thinking about this problem that you're getting ready to work on with the, with the colleague. We asked them to just write it down and we were able to evaluate how complex was their thinking. Were they thinking about both sides of the issue? Were they taking into consideration all the information they had available to them? When people knew that they were going to be talking to somebody who was different from them in terms of political persuasion, they worked harder. They wrote a more compelling, it had more elaboration. And because of that, they performed better, okay? So it's very clear to me the reality is that when you get into a diverse environment, we work harder. We actually process information more effectively. Having that presence of diversity, seeing that diversity, legitimates and promotes expression of different opinions and perspectives. It makes us work harder. We're more creative. We elaborate on things more effectively. I've been able to show people put in more effort. They just try harder on things. So I'm clear, people work harder in diverse environments and because of that hard work, groups perform better, right? But people are what we call cognitive misers. That is, we don't really wanna work that hard. If you're telling me that I can get a paycheck without working hard, I'll take the paycheck and lead hard work behind, right? We don't want to work that hard. <laughs> People are cognitive misers, they don't want to work that hard. And when they go through that process of actually second-guessing themselves and thinking about things in a complex way, they're not so satisfied with things. And that makes it hard to get people to seek out diversity, to sustain the efforts toward diversity, right? So what do we do? I have an analogy that I like to use. How many of you guys go to the gym? 
Raise your hand. Yeah, I don't. I shouldn't raise my hand. I do not go to the gym. <laughs> I'm, I'm still living off of the years of running track uh, when I was in college and high school. Uh, and every now and again, I get motivated and then I get busy and then I get motivated then I get busy and some days in the morning I'll put on my workout clothes and I'll walk my daughter to school and everybody's like oh you're going on a run and I'm like yeah <laughs> maybe <laughs> doesn't always happen but let, let me, if you put on your workout clothes and you go to the gym and you just stand around in the gym guess what you're not going to get any benefits from that. And I don't get any benefits from putting on my workout clothes in the morning either if I don't work out, right? Diversity is kind of like working out in the gym. You think about it. If you go to the gym with the intention to actually work out, seeking some pain, you're going in seeking discomfort. You have to sweat and get out nasty. You feel the tension in your muscles, the pain when you're doing the reps. You're looking for that little bit of twinge, that little bit of pain in the muscles to let you know that you're actually getting some benefits from that workout. Same with diversity. The reality is if you go into diverse environments with the intention of learning from one another, with the intention of disagreeing, with the intention of seeking out some discomfort, and when you find it, actually relishing in it the way you do when you go to the gym, it's a lot easier to capture the benefits. Because the reality is diversity is not about holding hands and singing kumbaya. Mm -mm. That's not what it's about. It's actually about learning. It's about growing. It's about pushing ourselves. It's about becoming better people because we realize that there's more than one way to think about things than the way we think about things. It's about realizing that we can't really do it by ourselves and that we have to humble ourselves to actually learn from other people to benefit from the diversity. Now, let me be clear. You can take this analogy and stretch it a little bit farther. What if you go to the gym all the time? If you're in the gym constantly lifting weights, you actually might hurt yourself. So I will be clear, I need my sisters. I need my spaces. <laughs> we all need our spaces to be with people where we could just be comfortable and not have to worry about it and not have to work so hard. That's totally understandable. But when you go to work, if you're coming to work for me, I want you to work. I'm actually paying you to work, not to sit around and be comfortable, right? So there's a balance that we have to find and a recognition that there are times when it's time to work and times when it's time to be comfortable. And that's okay, right? Now, I've done this work for quite a while and um, I've had people sometimes say to me, oh Kathy, it's getting better. Our kids are not going to have to worry about this because, you know, they're already experiencing diversity all the time. So, this problems that we're talking about are going to go away and we won't have these problems anymore. 
Now, I have two children, two girls, two young African-American women growing up fast, 10 and 15 years old. And when I moved to New York City, thinking to myself, great, we're going to New York. I have a four-year-old daughter at the time. And I put her in the preschool down the street, in a church. The preschool's in a church. And one day, I got a phone call from my daughter's teacher. And she said, um, I really would like to talk to you. Amali had been pushed down on the playground. I found her crying. I'd like to talk to you about what happened. Well, so, okay, no problem. I called her back the next morning and we started talking and she was really upset. And I was like, well, they're just kids, you know, something, she probably fell. She was actually pretty clumsy <laughs> at that time. So I thought, what's the big deal? And she said, well, I was talking to another little girl. I asked her what happened and she said to me, that she pushed Amali down because she can't play with her because her skin is brown. Yeah. So here we are, it was 2011, in New York City, one of the most diverse cities in the world, and my little brown daughter was pushed down on the playground. Now, of course, the mom here, who actually studies diversity, <laughs> I had to figure out, like, how, how am I going to approach this situation? Uh, talked to the teacher, learned a little bit about the parents and the family of the young girl that pushed my daughter down, and I actually decided, you know, we should, we should get to know them a little bit. And we went to their house, they came to our house, we had conversations. And one thing that the mother told me really stood out. She said to me, when I was at her house, she said, you know, my daughter actually has been bullied, so I think maybe that's what's going on here. She's bullying your daughter because that's happened to her. And I said, oh, well, really? Um, tell me more about this. She said, well, my daughter was bullied because um, some of the other kids that in the building we live in, in Harlem, you know, we intentionally decided to live in Harlem. Um, they actually bullied her because I work from home, and she doesn't have a nanny. And the other kids do have a nanny. And I said, oh, that's, that's, that's interesting. She said, well, you know, I work from home, and when we're coming home from school and going out in the mornings, there's all of these nannies, and I don't really have anything in common with the nannies. Like, you know, so it's kind of uncomfortable for me when I'm on the elevator and, you know, the kids are talking and the nannies are speaking another language. Uh, if you know New York City, what is absolutely true is that the majority of the nannies in New York City are people of color. They come from other, sometimes other countries, sometimes they might speak French or Spanish, um, etc. and they are brown. They are typically brown people. So as she was talking about this, I was listening, I was getting this picture in my head, the same picture you're getting in your head of this white mother being uncomfortable in the elevator with her child and these other children and these brown nannies. I said to the mom, you know, no matter how much you teach your daughter about the importance of diversity and how many books you have her read, how much you tell her, that children don't necessarily do what you say. They follow your behavior. 
they do what you do. So as long as you're uncomfortable with these nannies, as long as you're not talking to them, as long as you don't believe there's a need for you to have a relationship with them, your daughter will also believe there's no need to have relationship with my daughter. So the reality is that we all have an opportunity. We all have a responsibility. We all have, um, I think, have to have the humility to recognize that what we do every day, the interactions we have with other people, set an example, right? Set an example. And we're setting an example for children. And I don't believe this problem is going away by itself, right? So I've actually tried to start thinking about how do we get people then to make connections across boundaries? And this example that I'm giving you here is particularly about racial boundaries, but there may be other boundaries that need to be thought about. So what do we typically do when we get to know somebody in, let's say, at work, or a new person that you meet? We tend to kind of look for things we have in common. I did it myself this evening. Well, so where did you go to school? Where do you live? You're looking for similarities. You're like, yeah, I want to hear. I said, I did it this evening. Who's from Chicago? Woo woo, Chicagoans in the house, right? We do it all the time. We look for similarities because we're kind of, it makes us feel more comfortable. It just makes us feel better when we find these similarities. So I've challenged people to instead of looking for what you have in common with people, to instead approach interactions with people you don't know with a completely different mindset. And that is looking for things that are unique and different between you and them. Things that are not in common. Things that are, in fact, different. Now, we've been doing this little exercise with people um, in organizations. In fact, one of the times we did it was at an event for women on Wall Street. We did this thing and we asked them to turn to the person next to them and talk about what was unique about them and write it down on a piece of paper. And then we asked them, how comfortable would you be sharing that information with a colleague at work? Let's say a white male colleague. Let's say somebody who looks different from you. And the first question I got from the audience was, what does it mean if the thing that's most important to me on this piece of paper is the thing that I am least comfortable sharing with a colleague at work, what, if, what does it mean if I don't really want to bring my full self to the workplace and share with people who I really am? I said to her, you, you really need to think about that. Because if there's not one person in your organization that you feel like you can make a real connection with, that's a problem. It's gonna be a problem for your career. This is gonna be a problem for your outcomes. So the reality is we have to make real connections. We actually have to put our guards down a bit, be okay with difference and uniqueness because it turns out that no two individuals are exactly the same, and find ways and opportunities to actually go beyond what we see on the surface and dig a little bit deeper. Thank you.
That was Dr. Katherine Phillips at the Purpose Built Communities Annual Conference in Omaha in 2017. If you go on any college campus or in any corporate boardroom, you'll likely hear a talk about diversity. We're told that diversity is good, that it's something to strive for, and it certainly is. But if we're just adding in token others, then we're missing out on many of the benefits that diversity can actually afford us. Dr. Phillips talked about the barriers that we set up that move us away from the full value of diversity. Look at your community. What boundaries are there that keep people apart? What obstacles are in the way of bringing the community together to encourage diversity? Our work sets an example for others. By working with a diversity mindset, we can show everyone that we work with and work for, our partners, our local officials, other communities, our neighbors, how to move from having conversations about race to leading with racial equity every day. Find helpful resources on racial equity and holistic community development at PurposeBuiltCommunities.org and connect with others around the country working towards racial equity by following Purpose Built Communities on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We'd like to thank Dr. Katherine Phillips for her work and for sharing it with us. In our next episode, we'll hear from the Equity Ambassadors, leaders from several Purpose Built Communities network members taking the lead on racial equity. They'll share how they've individually wrestled with how race impacts their communities and how they're being intentional about addressing it. You know, I thought that I was the most unbiased person. And, you know, I'm from the South Side of Chicago. I'm from the North, moving to the South. And when I arrived there, I was appalled by racism. And I thought that I was different than that. And I still feel I'm different than that. But I never had the opportunity to really think about my white privilege or my white advantage as a woman in the South. And this group has really created a safe space to have these conversations and to really push the conversation, the work that we do, where I think that we're afraid to have these conversations. I feel like a lot of times they don't feel comfortable, they're uncomfortable. And I think this ambassador program has really pushed me personally um, to challenge myself um, to take it to the next level, that we all know that what the work that we do is the right way, but how we do it and how we talk about it and how we're going to leave this place better uh, is really going to impact. And so this has really made a big difference on me and, and in many cases, um, you know, really changed me personally. Listen to This Is Community wherever podcasts are available or on purposebuiltcommunities.org slash podcasts where you'll find more information on the purpose-built model and engaging sessions from our annual conferences. Presentations and videos at each of these sessions are on the website as well. This podcast is created in partnership with HL Strategy. Our executive producers are Aton Davidson, Howard Lawley, and Sherry Crawley. Our producer and editor is Brady Hummel. Mixing and mastering is by Matt Honkinen, and our music is from Pitchwire. Fine Productions recorded the conference session featured in this episode. If you like this series, be sure to subscribe and share it. I'm Alexandra Wiggins for Purpose Built Communities, and this is Community.